My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The and The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The React. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Signal. Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Conspiracy. The Resolution. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Not an Animorphs book. Okay, so here we are, our third mailbag episode. Whoa! I have called some thoughts and questions from our listeners. Our third mailbag episode, and we're recording on our one-year Animorphology-versary. Wow! Happy birthday! Yes, we are eating celebratory donuts. It's great. Sorry we can't share them with all of you. Hooray! Mm. Thanks for sticking with us for a whole year. It's been so great. It's been such a good year. This has been amazing. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that because I can't say much else. <laughs> don't know. It's the true celebratory spirit. <laughs> so I have written a bunch of categories for questions and comments on the whiteboard in this room. And uh, Gray and Ted will get to choose between them. I'm going to let Gray choose the first category because Ted is still eating a donut. Okay. I want to start with animal facts and theories. Okay. We have a lot of animal facts and theories. This one is probably not going to generate as much discussion, but we do have some fun animal facts from Avian Appeaser, or AA, as we'll be calling it. Uh, we have some for quote-unquote 37, in which uh, we learn that cheetah is a bad morph for taking down Andalites. Ooh, Great why? cats, but not well-armed. Hmm. Those paws are for running. Those jaws are for suffocating prey by clamping on the snout or the windpipe. Andalites are larger than most of the animals cheetahs go after, though they will cooperate to hunt largish antelopes and, uh, tails. Additionally, as a kid with an interest in biology, I was mad at this book for having Rachel be astonished by how good it feels to breathe as a cheetah. They have big lungs, but so do bats. Birds have a far more efficient lung system. Oh, yeah, that does make sense. And also not running with the anxious nature of these cats. The poor things are very high-strung. Aww. No wonder, since their native habitat is filled with so many sturdier predators that can and do easily outfight them. Yeah. So now we've learned some stuff about cheetahs. This is great. We're, like, filling in so, that 10% of animal facts. Yeah. In the series. I might be opening ourselves up to controversy here when I say that cheetahs, like quote-unquote 37, might not be all that they were built up to be <laughs> by that book. <laughs> I would still put cheetahs several rungs above book quote-unquote, 37. I tried The to, abomination of books. Cheetahs are still pretty cool. Cheetahs are very cool. And yeah. book 37, I tried to give negative stars to. <laughs> Turns out it didn't work. Yeah, oh, it didn't. That's a bummer. That would have been a great feature. We should suggest it to them. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder if there's, like, one animal that would be effective if they were all that animal to kill an Andalite. Hmm. Like, maybe poison frogs or the snake, if there were a bunch of snakes. Yeah. Well, we know Garotron was weak to snakes. Yeah. And Mr. Three almost died in Book 8 due to snakes. Yeah. So snakes is a really good one. I mean, I wouldn't really want to take Garotron as evidence because I feel like everything logistical in that book was very suspect. But yeah, I think uh, snakes is probably a better way to go. So what also... about giant anteaters? <laughs> Wait, giant anteaters or giant 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 anteaters? Thank you, Gray. Thank you, Gray. Important distinction. Giant giant anteaters might work if they morphed them really close together, so the viscer didn't have room to morph without like getting crushed. But viscer has so many morphs, and he's learned to morph small, so I think he might be able to get out. What you really need is that 
plus the anti-morphing ray. Oh, yeah, you just have, have to aim really carefully. So you Very can't carefully. get a controller to aim it because they can't aim. Right. The answer is howlers. They should just all morph howlers. Oh man, yes. Wasn't Andalites like, are through very his vulnerable to howlers, and I yeah. bet Yerks would be too because they're very smart. Jake is the only one who has a howler morph. Yeah, but he could just he could just morph a howler. That's probably enough. One howler did take out like all the animorphs. Okay, great. I'm glad we solved that one. Oh, we also got an answer for why they don't morph polar bears more often. AA is endorsing the polar bear overheating thing. Apparently, mm. that's such a problem that on land, polar bears make few kills. Reindeer can just run away from them, and after a brief sprint, the bears overheat in the Arctic. I gotta think that means even what the kids do in polar bear morph here in California is pressing the limits of these bodies. So we have sort of been like, why don't they just morph polar bear more often? And apparently that would be a bad idea. Yeah, so. in California, that's yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Very that's, good point. That's awesome. Also, some rat facts. Oh no. Oh, right. I've been thinking about coming back here and dropping some rat facts I acquired while writing a David Misery fic. <laughs> Strong rat start, facts. AA. Hashtag David Misery. <laughs> Subscribe. <laughs> so apparently rats' lives really suck. Male rats are inclined to be aggressive to each other. In a pet-type environment, ones raised together can be very friendly with each other, but you still get incidents. And even in the kindest environment, introducing a new male is very dangerous. Everything is worse in the kind of wild colonies where rats can't get chased off or go in search of greener pastures. Rats up and kill male intruders. There's a window between being a baby rat, and therefore a prey item, and being an adult rat where a juvenile male may be tolerated and survive. Female intruders also often get attacked, but with less fervor and are more easily accepted, especially if they arrive in heat. But as you can imagine, that comes with its own horrors. We do not, for the record, know what gender rat David morphed, I don't think. Do we know that there was a colony of rats on the island? Yes. It was a rat. It shows it because there were a bunch of rats on the island, which it turns out may have been a mistake. I persist in saying that just killing him would have been kinder. Yes. Even if David managed to be accepted and survive, rats in colonies with limited space and food, such as on a rocky island, Mm -hmm. without escape or any predators thinning their numbers, live violent, nasty, short lives. Well, that describes David anyway, so. Aw. Violent, nasty, short. and short. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he is now. Exactly. A couple last uh, animal theories. Ooh. This is also from Avian Feaser on Visser Part 1. I speculate that Esplin just has a menagerie on hand and brought out the tiger and bear from that. I mean, he called the Valique pet in Yerkish. He had pet Mortrons in the Andalite Chronicles. He likes cats, though he stopped with the compliments by now. He may be impressed by Rachel. I'm so fascinated by the idea of Visser 3's menagerie. Where does he keep it? Look like. Does he keep it up in the pool ship or? Oh, I bet he does. I bet there are minions who have to clean it out and are so mad. And every once in a while, Visser 3 swans through and is like, ah, my pretty cat. No, he must have like a secret facility on Earth because maybe that's why he had the Aria morph. Wasn't she like a nature photographer or something? Oh my gosh. Right? Like. Hmm. He must have this whole alternate life as, like, a zoo friend. Sure. And he doesn't have any conception of, like, these animals are rare and these animals are common. Uh-huh. So he probably has this, like, elaborate house cat display. And he forces controllers to come through and be like, look, this one's fur is orange and white. And they're like, uh-huh, that's amazing, Visser 3. Please don't kill me. This is the most I have ever identified with Visser 3. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we could give you that experience. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. It's time for a new category. Ted, you're up. Ooh. Oh, man. I can't decide between logistics and yurt logistics, so I'm <laughs> going to pick the chi. 
Okay. Ooh. Well, I just, I thought it was important to have this category. And I thought it was important because people had brought up stuff about the chi and not for any other reason. Right. What are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, I really think we should come up with a plan of some sort, but, you know, let's talk offline. They're still pacifists, right? I hope so, because we're kind of screwed if they are. There's a bunch of them. They've got good weapons. I appreciate you guys sitting here in such silence while I find the right category. You're it's welcome. Really, I love it. Okay, so we have a comment from Rena Gale on book 32. Rena. Okay, here's the real question about Eric you guys didn't address. Why the heck was Eric able to electrocute Rachel at all? How is that not a violent <gasps> act in and of itself? It clearly causes her pain. This is the same Eric who couldn't perform a life-saving operation on Axe back in 29, a situation that was definitely a lot more desperate than this. To be fair, that was because he, like, didn't know brain surgery, but our speculation was, you know, violence. I guess Mighty Rachel and Wimp Rachel don't count as people. Whoa! This is super Buffy in ways that I'm sure you don't know, because I don't think you saw that part of Buffy. Also, that's a nonsense theory. They're clearly both humans. (laughs) But if they're both partial humans... (laughs) Violence against partial humans probably still counts as violence. It's true. It's true. And also, they are, I mean, they are both humans. Yeah. 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 So right, you can't consent to have violence done to you, right? Right. No, that she that still wouldn't work for the chi. Yeah. Would Eric be on board for pretending to electrocute them, and they electrocuted themselves in their imagination? But they Uh, didn't know that they were like Eric didn't give her any warning. It's just like suddenly electrocution. So I don't think you could just do it psychosomatically. Yeah, because the other weird thing about the chi is that it actually, the intention or the ends do not justify the means right. for them. He couldn't so do any violence in defense of the Anwars in right. 26. Maybe 32 happened in that brief window of time when Eric had the Pemelite crystal in book 10. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Are you saying this series is non-linear? I'm saying this is my best theory. <laughs> okay. I think that possibly... Even look at me. <laughs> Just going to move right on from that nonsense. I think, I mean, Rena references the thing where Eric wouldn't perform brain surgery on Axe, and that was really just our theory. That's yeah. not actually in the books. It is possible that it doesn't count as violence if it is causing a direct physical benefit. It's not just like, down the road, this will be better for you. It's like, this is like a medical intervention. Okay. Who in this scene... It's obviously a case arena. It's a good... It's a good... (laughs) Who in this scene... Who was not in this scene? The Animorphs were all there, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So characters that they could draw on to do this that were not in the scene. Tidwell. Yeah, Tidwell, Toby maybe. Mm -hmm. So maybe someone came up with the electrocution theory and then also hologram technology disguised themselves as Eric in order to electrocute the Rachels. (laughs) Because (laughs) the other Animorphs thought it would be okay if Eric did it, but it wouldn't be okay if, like, Marco did it. Okay, was Marco so, <laughs> wearing a chi costume? So the other Animorphs didn't trust anyone but Eric to do it. So Eric had to use his hologram no, technology. No, but Eric wouldn't do that if he knew it would lead to an electrocution. So the, no, the that's indirect enough that I think have... he could have done it. I have a question. Yes. Because I don't remember book 10 well enough to know whether this was explained and I have just forgotten it. Please remember, everyone, I've only read these books once a year. Once and a half, usually. Okay. (laughs) In book 10, was it ever explained that they, by their programming, are not allowed to do violence? Yes. 
So it might be that if Eric does it, his programming allows it, and therefore it doesn't count as violence. Well, what do you mean if he does it, the programming allows he, it? He electrocuted Rachel, mm-hmm. and therefore that doesn't count as violence. Electrocution doesn't otherwise count. His You're right. Programming That's the simplest explanation. Electrocution well, yeah. doesn't yeah. count as violence. Okay. <laughs> Why not? I don't know, but there's... <laughs> Well, You're right, but if the programming allows it, then it must not be violence. Exactly. Okay, I mean, sure. He's, he's programmed Answer. to do it. Yeah, let's please move on. This has been a very <laughs> stressing conversation. Yes, it has. I mostly blame you. <laughs> I mean, I did choose the questions. Just Oh, yeah, okay. Then mostly I blame Jenny. Okay. I blame the chi. That's what you, I just said. No, you said you blamed me. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. I got confused. All right. Silly me. We have a question from Joe Kenobi on 32. I agree with your conclusion that Eric would not be able to obtain the morphing power since he's not a biological being. But the question made me wonder, could a Terminator obtain the power to morph? Yes, I realize I'm mixing sci-fi genres here. The Terminator is a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Would that be capable of morphing? As a rule, I would say cyborgs are able to morph. I'm not sure if Terminators are able to morph Mm. because I don't know enough about how it counts. But like, if you were a cyborg, like, not endoskeleton style, but like... You know, like a metal arm and leg. Yeah, or, or even Wolverine, right? Ooh. Wolverine could morph, right? But he would always be leaving his adamantium skeleton behind when he does it, right? Are you it's like sure? When, it's like when they get the chips the in their chips head in the book head. 15. Yeah, right? it sticks so with them. So your he cyborg might... part is not able to morph. but He might have an adamantium skeleton in his morphs. But the, the adamantium won't morph. Right, but does that mean he'd just be, like, a wolf with, like, adamantium human skeleton sticking out of him? Yes. Yes, okay. So he could morph, but he shouldn't. Yes. Okay. What about, like, Bucky Barnes? Could he morph, would the arm morph with him? No. Okay, so... I don't actually know anything about the Winter Soldier. Oh, okay, he has a metal arm. That's... Yeah, the metal arm can't morph. Okay. So cyborgs can morph, but it's risky. It's not not like you think of it as part of yourself. Maybe... What if Bucky were in a stream? Could he morph with the metal arm? Oh, you're right. No, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Especially because it is conceptualized as part of himself. All right. Terminators can morph. I'm all in. Whoa, whoa. Too far. <laughs> Defend yourself, Jenny. Terminators have no sense of self, so they can't morph their cybernetic endoskeletons. I don't know. I think Terminators might not be, like, at their core biological enough to morph. Whereas can, Bucky's mostly human. Can other kinds of shapeshifters morph? Can, like, a werewolf morph? Yeah. Why not? Could... Could they morph from wolf form or human form? Exactly. Ooh. Could Alex Mack from The Secret World of Alex Mack morph? She can turn into a puddle. (laughs) A sentient mobile puddle that oozes around. So, do you think she could morph from human and then demorph into a puddle? No. But maybe she could morph and then turn into a puddle. So, but that wouldn't be demorphing? No. Okay. So she could go from one <laughs> she could morphing morph into a, a... She could demorph from a wolf puddle into a human puddle. <laughs> Perhaps. So if she morphs wolf for like an hour and a half and then turns into a puddle for an hour and a half, would she be a wolf if puddle knothlet? And gonna, could she still switch between wolf and puddle? That's a great question, but let's simplify. Is if it? You're, if you're a werewolf and you morph over the full moon when you would transform and then mm-hmm. you demorph, do you demorph into your wolf body. Oh, so if you're the kind of werewolf that just has to be is it transformed time-based, or is it like moon. the moonlight? Because there's no moonlight in Z-Space. So possibly you would demorph into human and then the moonlight would hit you and then you would turn into a wolf. It's possible. 
Gray looks so bored. <laughs> Should we move on, Gray? <laughs> I have nothing to add to I don't to know this why you're bored because this is fascinating. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Ted's just laughing at me because I don't care about <laughs> whether Alex Mack can more. I also I don't, don't care about the really interesting. <laughs> One drink and is, two. Is it? <laughs> This is a great, great conversation, and I don't know what problem <laughs> Only you have two categories in. Another question from Rena, this time on 27. Why do the Pemelites have a self-destruct sequence for the Chi if they're non-violent? It can't be because they thought they'd go rogue, because it would have activated on Eric back in Book 10 otherwise. And we already know that there's no way to reprogram a Chi other than a Pemelite crystal. Yeah. So what is up with that? Rena, you just, you're believing all the Pemelite propaganda. Pemelites yeah. were not they're cracked up to be. Oh, man. Their society really was rough. only perfect because they had absolute control over everything everybody did. Uh, except that they didn't. They got destroyed. Is it just that their absolute control failed in the end? Yeah. Okay. They didn't anticipate the Howlers. They had absolute control over everything else. Well, internally, right? Mm, yeah. The Howlers showed up. And there was a virus, right? Uh, yeah, the, the Howlers also had a, a nasty bioweapon. Great. I remember so many things. But for all we know, the Pemelites built that bioweapon to destroy the Howlers, and it blew up in their faces. Like an asteroid thing or an hour. The thing. Andalites did it. <laughs> yes, oh, it was man. definitely the Andalites. <laughs> mm, uh, they're, they're the worst. They're just blaming the Howlers. So the Andalites destroyed the Pemelites. The, yes. I'm blaming the Andalites for everything. Okay. New headcanon. It's harsh, but we have no evidence against it. Well, exactly. Do you guys think there are other takes on the like? We don't have the council doesn't have to accept my dystopian view of Pemelite society. Yeah, I'm not really on board with it. I think it's probably more complex than it was presented, but I do think that uh, probably they were fundamentally peaceful and did not absolutely control everything. Whence the self destruct sequence? That's a good question. Maybe they were afraid that the chi would be kidnapped, and because they were nonviolent, wouldn't be able to defend themselves, and they didn't want the existence of, like, slavery or imprisonment for their creatures, and they thought death would be better. They built the, like, chi with a cyanide capsule? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Gray looks so does convinced. It, it's does, amazing. Does it, like, would it wipe out all the chi, or would it be, you They're have to program good. I bet you could target it. One. I bet you could target individual chi. But that is sort of violence. It sure is. So... No, but Pemelites can do violence. She can't do violence. Right. right. But Pemelites are against violence. Well, yeah. But that's just like me choosing not to be violent. Mm-hmm. I could, right? But, but like, it's if weird I were... to build in a self-destruct sequence for something to destroy it if you don't believe in like destroying sentient creatures, sapient creatures. Or is it Pemelites Androids. didn't build the chi. What? Did the Andalites do it again? They're not good enough for that. No. Maybe Cryak built the chi. Oh my gosh. The Drode knew about the self-destruct sequence. Maybe the Drode built the self-destruct sequence. It goes all the way to the top. <laughs> Is the Drode the top? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Definitely not. Absolutely Just not. Adam Clayton had some thoughts on chi morality in book 26. He He's saying, you know, chi morality different from human morality. We can't really judge them by the same standards. However, all that said, that doesn't make the chi good by any means. They have maintained perfect secrecy for so long that I can't help but wonder if it's really so perfect. I mean, the Animorphs noticed Eric was an android when he was hit by a bus. It's very plausible to me that someone has figured at least a bit of what they are, and the Chi would have had to deal with that problem somehow. So that person would have to be disappeared. I'm sure they weren't hurt in any way, just kept safely apart from anyone else until their tragically short human lifespan ceased. That's very dark. I think that's plausible. It also makes me think of the counterfactual where, like, 
Eric didn't get hit by a bus, that she would never have revealed themselves to the Animorphs, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, so, like, man, and yeah. things would have gotten, really gone way worse, right? So mm-hmm. the Animorphs lucked into having these amazing well, that wasn't allies. about the bus. That was because Jake and Marco saw him at the concert. But, yeah, if they hadn't stumbled across... Right. It's not like they were planning to, like, help the anti-Yurk forces at some point. Right. Because the well, default would be to do nothing. No, they were. Eric already had a Yurk in his head when mm-hmm. Jake and Marco found him. Like, he was, he and some others were already involved in, like, this resistance movement. That's true. And the initial exciting thing was have, get the mm-hmm. Pemlite crystals. So they did. So maybe at right. some point they would have reached out to the Animorphs. But right. I don't think they knew about yeah. the Like, they knew there were Andalite bandits, but they wouldn't have been able to find them. Mm-hmm. That would be a really interesting thing is like Eric shows up and he's like, okay, guys, I need you guys to do this cool heist and give me a super crystal so I can become an evil robot. Mm-hmm. And the animals are like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Question mark. I think this theory of Adams is plausible, but also not necessarily true. I think that possibly if you found out there were like weird robots, there would be all sorts of like, well, I must be hallucinating. Or maybe that she would talk to you and be like, we're really cool. Don't tell anyone about us. And then maybe you wouldn't. Or if you did, no one would believe you. I don't think they would have to, like, hide people away to keep their secret. Because their secret is, like, it's hard to break that secret. Mm-hmm. I realize that what they should have done to, what they should do to any future enemies, like David, is to not let them into a dog. And then give them to the chief. Mm-hmm. Because then you're they'd not, be so happy. You'd be, they'd be so happy. They'd have me somewhere they'd be contained, well taken care of. That would have been she would keep an eye on so them. much better. Keep an eye on them for the rest of their oh. short human lives. Yeah. Okay. That that does it for the chi. Okay. No more chi. We don't need to talk about chi stuff anymore. Why would we? Why, what? I don't know why we would. I just said we don't need to. I'm so confused. <laughs> How about morphing weirdness? Okay. We have some thoughts on the weird morphing stuff that has happened in the 30s. So Rena had some thoughts on book 34. Perhaps the fact that Cassie struggled so hard mentally after that morph and had to let Aldrea take over for a bit maybe implies that even if the Andalite scientists knew that such a use of the morphing tech was possible, they also knew it was very inadvisable due to the mental strain slash danger it produced, and therefore they wouldn't tell the general users about it or allow anyone to try it out in the field. Sort of in the same way that you could use a tumble dryer to dry your cat off, but you'd be much more likely to have a dead cat afterward. <laughs> Whoa! Things. That took a turn. But the overall point is a good one. Okay. Yes. So it's entirely possible that Andalite scientists have experimented with this, and Cassie might have been able to survive it only because she had another brain in hers. This is also yeah. just like, obviously this is how most bad science works, right? It's <laughs> like, oh, like... Somebody could use a social network to create, like, a mass disinformation uh, campaign. <laughs> Why would they would do they? that? That's not the point of it. Surely not. Although, this isn't that kind of terrible consequence. It's just, you know. Yeah, but it's strange. just like, you know, when things are possible but bad, it's easy to uh, ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> so, now we have a couple of different theories on being in a stream, mm. both from AA. First, on 38. Cassie and Estrid both have a biofocus in a way, huh? Cassie knows anatomy and habits. Estrid knows more chemistry and physiology, I think. Maybe they can visualize things about their morphs in greater detail. And morph dancers are a synthesis of science and art. So it's like an interesting, like, maybe knowing knowing animals so well, like, scientifically works out. But she also had a theory on 35. The way that both this, being Marco's, like, weird hybrid morphs, and the allergy in book 12, are tied to strong emotion is fun, and both have morphing that's not possible by the typical rules. 
Are streams therefore better at understanding their emotions? Huh. Well, the first theory is more compelling if we think that Esplin isn't a stream. Maybe oh, he's just he into definitely cannot right. control but his emotions. Not in touch with this emotions. goes so well with the menagerie theory. Exactly. This is great. Okay. <laughs> oh, I love Accepted. that. All right. It's just, you know, loving animals. It definitely doesn't have to do with controlling emotions, but maybe it's not about controlling emotions, but tapping into your emotions. And he has these like vicious, murderous emotions. Therefore, when he wants to attack the animorphs or, you know, other people, he's able to like morph these vicious monsters very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. really, both like are that. valid. All right. I yeah. Like that. I yeah. take it. All right. That's it for morphing weirdness. All right. Um, let's talk about representation. All right. We just have a few things here. We have something from Rena again. Guys, we, I love our repeat commenters. They're so great. They're the best. They really are so good. So this is on book 34. I don't think this is something we really talked about. In fact, she says one thing you guys didn't discuss okay. is how it might have worked if Aldrea had been hosted by someone else. I think it says something interesting about the book that the only options for a body share are the female characters. Why are the male characters automatically excluded? This is that thing that you mm-hmm. bring up all the time about. It's so uncreative how, like, yeah. oh, Stick we think to of New York as male, or we yep. think of, yeah. Yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they probably didn't want to, I mean, it was a Cassie book, so obviously she was going to be with Cassie. And, like, I could see why they wouldn't want to deal with, like, the potential awkwardness of, like, a male mind and a female body. But, mm-hmm. like, I feel like it probably just didn't occur to them. Yeah. What if it had been Dak and not Aldrea? Who do you think would have been the, the match? Or how would it have worked with Cassie? Ooh, with mm. Cassie. I feel like they would have really gotten along. I don't know. I wonder Maybe she if... would have been like, yeah, stay forever. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> Jake might have been sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if he would have had priorities or, like, a view of the war by that point that would be incompatible with Cassie's. I mean, probably, but yeah. certainly less incompatible than Aldrea. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, Aldrea yeah. and Cassie are so incompatible in the way that they view that, whereas I feel like Dax probably would have had a little more. Yeah. I mean, he seems to just be, like, a more understanding, moral, emotionally intelligent person in general. Yeah. Yeah, what about, like, what would have been the interesting non-Cassie choice? Like, who would Dax have conflicted the most with? Rachel? Marco? Axe? Ooh, Axe. Mm. We could have called them Dax. Or Axe. It's two A's. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. I feel I've like... won you over again. <laughs> <laughs> you lost me there for a little while, but... Axe with two A's. Probably right background. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Worst. <laughs> Uh, so we also had just an observation from Jay on 38, which I really liked. The whole not as pleasant as chocolate line, which you will remember, was was Estrid's response to like, kissing is nice, not as pleasant as chocolate. Uh, the whole not as pleasant as chocolate line struck such a chord with me as a baby ace. It's Aww. been seared into my brain for the past 15 odd years. That's, oh, that's lovely. That's really nice. Okay. Yes. And it's so nice that, like, we talked before about how this series didn't intend certain types of representation, but, like, still included them. I think this was, like, even less intended than other mm-hmm. stuff, but it's still just really nice. I that really that like it. There. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. It's so great to find things in yeah. that resonate so well. So we also had some thoughts from KS on our Magmorphs 3 episode mm-hmm. about Rachel saying that her father is Jewish. Mm. Uh, K.S. says, I'm not Jewish, but my family is Hindu, and it's been argued that Hinduism is also an ethnic religion. 
Uh, so the breakdown, as I see it, is there's a cultural component, a religious component, and that third component that's just if someone is. Mm-hmm. But what I think is kind of interesting about Jake and Rachel is that they fall in different categories here. It definitely doesn't come up as much as it probably should. But we do get hints that Jake's family is at least vaguely practicing, because Axe mentioned that they said a prayer before eating, which never came up again in any of Jake's actual books, but it's still something that apparently happened. Rachel, though, definitely doesn't keep kosher. We've seen her eat both shrimp and pork. So presumably the difference with which she refers to her dad as Jewish is due to her not feeling very Jewish. Hmm. It could also be due to living with her mom. But since the name Naomi is of Hebrew origin, it's also possible that her mom is also Jewish, just not observant. So yeah, interesting. Nice perspective. I like the idea that Jake and Rachel have a different relationship to that Jewish identity. It's a good, like, it's good headcanon. But I still, <laughs> I still have that reaction of like, but if that's true, it should come up. It should matter. Oh, definitely. It shouldn't yeah, just matter fine. when you're killing in Hitler. Fact, any of the, in fact, the end of this comment is, does any of this matter? No, not at all. Yeah. But I thought it was kind of interesting. <laughs> no, I, I yeah. really, I love the perspective. Yeah. It should definitely come up more. All right. Great. It's your turn. Let's get a new category. Let's go with Andalites. Andalites. I actually have an Andalites thing to share from okay. Jeremy. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> who um, has been our guest a couple of times. Who pointed out to me uh, after book 38 that what the Andalites are doing is actually not genocide. But xenocide. Mm, the -hmm. distinction being it is not wiping out a group of your fellow, the members of your species, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. a different species entirely. Oh, yeah. We've been misusing that word a lot then. Which is, I think, kind of an interesting way to put it. And he pointed out that in a lot of other sci-fi, that distinction is quite important. So Mm -hmm. Ender's Game was was his example. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. It's a really good point that... The Andalites may be much calmer about genocide because they have a more distinct separation between their species and others in the kind of intergalactic right. economy that whereas, they have. Whereas thematically it's genocide because the series is saying all sentient, sapient mm-hmm. creatures are human. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. that's 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 a really interesting nuance. And like yeah. a lot of sci-fi does go there, and mm-hmm. for whatever reason the Animorphs doesn't as much. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like it, or it does more. Well, the Animorphs has very, except for humans, has, well, actually even sort of with humans, has been making all of the species pretty monolithic. So right. there's, mm-hmm. like, conflict between alien species is substituting for conflict between, like, in and out groups or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, species. yeah. So, I, yeah, I feel like it does kind of function like genocide in the series. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But it's interesting that it's not the way the world building works. As you say, it's monolithic species with internecine fighting, but it's not not a commentary on, for example, racism. It's about war written more largely, so you can substitute like cost benefit analysis, right? You, right. Yeah, you can substitute the war like, life. well, it's war is really bad, and but we're wiping out the Yerks, and they're obviously the bad guys, mm-hmm. as opposed to there being any nuance within that. And letting it stand in as a metaphor for, see, humans can't even, can't get along with the Andalites. It's kind of like racism. I feel like it kind of is trying to make that metaphor at a lot of points, and it sometimes doesn't work. Is the way that Estrid and Arbat react to Axe sort of like picking humans over Andalites, Mm. should it be the case that if, if he is betraying his species, the reaction is... Should the reaction be greater or like harder to comprehend or something? Like if it's like know. if you suddenly mm. realized that your friend had like decided to let bears eat all humans or something, it's like <laughs> what are you doing with their bears? They're not people, right? Like mm. I feel like, like would, I feel like it's 
I don't know. This is total speculation. I feel like it would be less horrifying to see an Andalite join humans than it would be to see, like, you know, someone join a different, like, ethnic or, like, you know, group within your own society. Because I feel like the Andalites don't feel like humans are at all closely associated with them or a threat to their identity or anything like that. It's kind of like, oh, he's gone off to this weird quadrant of the galaxy galaxy to, like, do this weird thing. Okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. Some people juggle geese. And, like, in... But if it's, like, a group that's more closely associated with you, you might see it as more of a betrayal. You might see the groups more in conflict. Like, I feel like that would be more fraught. I see what you're saying, but I think that the Andalites and humans are more... Their interests are more in conflict. I think Andalites just see humans as, like, just... I don't know. I think they just don't care. It's like, you know, maybe humans would see Andalites as in conflict with them, but Andalites would be like, oh, you over there. Okay, whatever. But But then how is it so easy for Axe to... Well, he's been living with them. He's really been, like, mm-hmm. seeing a lot of them. Yeah. The Andalites really haven't been paying any attention to humans. Like, they keep being like, I don't know, maybe we'll send a fleet. Oops, no, we're not. Mm. Like, they don't care. I started reading the Xenogenesis series by Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. And, like, the whole first part of that is just about what we were just talking about, where a human protagonist is confronted with a truly alien and strange culture that has, like, abducted and healed her and, like, all this time has passed and stuff. And her coming to terms with, like, the visceral horror of, like, interacting with them mm. is, like, a major part of it. And so, like, that's that's a good example of, like, actually tackling with what that would be like in a way mm-hmm. that, like, mm-hmm. you could sort of say, like, oh, well, they don't, they don't think of them as these different things. But I think that kind of, like, experience of horror would be a lot harder to get over mm-hmm. than just, like, oh, you're a person from a different culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Octavia Butler does that incredibly well, in part because in all of her fiction, she really draws on her experiences as a woman of color to portray as humans our horror of the other exactly, and the yeah. ways that she's experienced that. And a lot of other sci-fi series that deal with that, you can almost tell that the author is coming from a place of privilege where they haven't been othered in that way and experienced the aggressions that happen when you're not of the majority. And, you know, and I'm speaking very specifically here of like American kind of Western sci-fi, which I know much more about. And so I I was just reading one of my absolute favorite sci-fi series. I adore it, but it doesn't do that well. So it's um, the Becky Chambers series that starts with A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And it's a, a delightful series. It really is. But for the most part, the aliens all get along in a really open and loving and like friendly mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And the explanation in world is that humans were such a small backward species when they were discovered by this kind of intergalactic interspecies group that they never really had a chance. So they just kind of had to go along with it, which I think is deeply underestimating humans' ability to hate other things. <laughs> um, yeah. And and so it's just, I think it's interesting to see the ways the different sci-fi series deal with the idea of otherness and how the writer's experiences can inform them. Mm-hmm. I think one time the Animorphs does it really well is when Arbrin gets trapped as a taxon in the Andalite Chronicles, mm-hmm. right? Like that is like really dealing, and like taxons are obviously horrible. They're just like the worst, worst. right? Like, and there's kind of this thing where, like, the more similar to humans aliens are, the more, like, good or relatable they are. And mm-hmm. so, like, uh, obviously Texans, like, they're gross. They're, like, inherently gross. And sure. so, of course, they're, like, these evil monsters. But when 
Elfingor is seeing like, oh my god, my friend has been turned into this monster. Right. That's like a good example of, of Animorphs doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So we had some other Andalite thoughts. We had a thought from Chaos on 38, which I don't know why we didn't think of this or discuss it, but I didn't I didn't think of it at all in this way. One headcanon that I love is that Estrid is in fact Arbat's niece on top of being his student, which would make her one of the children Aloran mentioned having, which would add an interesting element to that whole dynamic. Like, I did not connect that at all. I mean, it turns out she's not. At least they say she's not his niece. And then AA adds on to that and says, if there's some variant of witness protection most people don't know, say, but some do and have limited her areas of study, that would be interesting, even if it does slide right back into everyone's related to someone important territory. That's like very... Mm. It's very like Shakespearean. If she doesn't know Aloran's her father, or her father, oh, right? Like, a, I assume she would know. But, but why maybe. wouldn't she react to like them killing her father's body? Well, killing she's him. Just, he's still there. She's right? hiding in science. Well, she also knows that that's not their real goal. That's true. So, hmm. but her but goal like, is. To, oh wait. So her goal would be the same as like her father's goal. Would her prion virus kill all Yurks and all humans, but not Aloran? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. I like yeah. this theory a lot. Yeah, it's uh it's not I don't think it's very supported by the book, but it's really fascinating to think about. Right. Because it's like it's like you make the science is, okay, what can I make that will kill Yurks but not kill Andalites? Do yeah. I care if it kills humans? <laughs> She's like, I care a little. And imagine imagine coming up with that idea after having grown up in the shadow of what your father did, mm. which was release Ooh. a virus that would kill a whole sentient species. And she's gone into the sciences and has come up with a way to do this. You would have such a complex relationship to doing that. Like, maybe you'd want to do it to sort of double down on, like, no, what my dad yeah. did was right. Estrid's such a good character. I yeah. want more. I want more Estrid. I know. So we also had a comment from Scholastica on 38. Great which, name. Uh, I enjoyed this. Considering this war has been going on for decades by this point, the Andalites' refusal to let women join the military is especially jarring. It means they're deliberately cutting their fighting force by 50% while the Yurks are bringing every able body to bear. You mm. don't see them checking under the taxon skirts. <laughs> Amazing image. It was Terrible image. Such a great question. And of course, raises the question, if a taxon were to wear a skirt, which way would it like bisect their body? I hate, I hate it. <laughs> Is it like a bed skirt or... <laughs> Gravy. I, ha- I actually have a pretty strong opinion about this. But... <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Except so that I, I hate think, it. So the taxons, like the, the front third of their bodies kind of rear back. Yep. So yep. I assume that their waist would be at the bottom of that front third. Uh-huh. So the skirt would cover the, the bottom two thirds of their body. So it would like, but it would go around like the, the narrower diameter of right, the taxon right. and then go yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. It would not be like a bed skirt. It would not be like a best. <laughs> okay, I... That reminds me of, like, the luggage from Discworld. Yes. What it reminds me of is the centipede from James and the Giant Peach. Mm-hmm. Wears mm-hmm. Oh. Well, he wears pants mm-hmm. and suspenders mm-hmm. for question mark reasons. <laughs> and a shirt with 12 armholes. Uh-huh. But even more important is what kind of pants would Axe wear in his Andalite form? Yes, I've seen that there is a very important cartoon addressing this. Well, what do you think? In his Andalite morph? Yeah, when he's when in he's his Andalite, in his body. Andalite yeah. body, he's wearing pants. Where do they go? I feel like they would have to start at the base of the human torso and then cover the entire like four legs. So, right. think leg. so it'd be like a drawstring. Have, Andalites have two crotches or a front crotch, but not only a back crotch. No, definitely not. Only, why would you only wear pants on two of your four legs? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> 
<laughs> they only have a back crotch, but they like to cover the front area where a crotch would be for modesty. So you would wear pants that come up to your neck. I have no. high-waisted jeans. They would go the up arms to... go through extra <laughs> pant legs. If I had extra arms, if I had extra arms in my torso, mm-hmm. I would wear a shirt with four armholes. If I had extra legs coming out of my hips, I would wear pants with four legs. Yeah. I choose to believe <laughs> that while they may have two pelvises, they only have one waist, and that is right. the one that is above their... At the bottom of their torso that they have. The bottom of their torso. Yeah. That's where the waist of the pants would be. But because it would have to go over their whole, like, andelite back, it would have to be, like, a drawstring situation. The number of things weird? I never thought I would have to think about <laughs> before we started since this they, podcast. Since they eat through their hooves... Yeah. Would wearing the pants that you are advocating for just be kind of like wearing like a ski mask that goes over your mouth with like a, a little hole in the front? Just like a kind of like a beard, like a balaclava beard. Is that all it is? I don't think that's really related at all. Their mouth is in a totally different, their mouths are in different places. It's like, also, why, why are you wearing clothes around your mouth? Oh, <laughs> no, they're wearing clothes around their mouths. It doesn't matter because it's just, I mean, it's just the base of the hoof that needs to be exposed to the grass. It'd be like wearing a shirt that goes up to your neck. It'd be like wearing a turtleneck. Mm. No, I'm happy with the turtleneck. That's good. So glad we're addressing these important questions. That's what we're here for. I love it. All right. Turtleneck. Done. More Andalites. Oh, Rena has some thoughts on our question from 33. I'll admit, I was also curious about what retching up means to an Andalite. Oh. (laughs) Rena! (laughs) But I hadn't quite considered those ramifications. I can come up with a couple of alternative possibilities, though. One, since we know the Andalites have multiple hearts, maybe they also have multiple stomachs, like a cow's. And retching up means food goes from a secondary stomach back up to the first stomach. (laughs) Sorry, I just just saw Ted's face. (laughs) I don't, want to, I don't want to have, like, I don't want to be able to throw up into my inside organs. It sounds so unpleasant. <laughs> well, no one likes throwing up, Ted. Okay, yeah, two. Yeah, that's also not how cows stomach work. Retching doesn't always mean actual vomiting. It can just mean the extreme nausea and heaving motions associated with vomiting without actually bringing anything up. So maybe it's sort of a translation error. We can go with that. So Random- imagining, just imagine if you threw up and it came out through all of your fingers and toes. <laughs> It would be the worst. (laughs) I'm so glad this topic came up again, because I brought it up again. Random side note, but Andalites are often compared to small horses in appearance, and horses, despite having a digestion system similar to ours, can't vomit at all. So I would imagine that if food has to travel all the way up an Andalite's legs to get to his stomach, that vomiting would be similarly difficult. Can horses retch? Is that different from vomiting? Well, okay, yes. I I think no. I think no. I'm assuming no. If Andalites can retch... I'm skeptical about this analogy. Of course, this can't. <laughs> but it's a fun fact. Yeah, it might be a translation error. That's, you know. Okay, final Andalite, Andalite topic. Oswald Privileges on Tumblr says, Why do species without the ability to communicate verbally, such as Yerkes and Andalites, have verbal languages? What other forms of language might they have? Sign language? Chemical communication? Direct conceptual projection? I mean, that's kind of what they have. Well, Yerkes don't, I don't think. They have, like, so... Andalites have that thing that allowed Elfingor to pass to bias memories in the first book. Mm-hmm. And we also mm-hmm. know from the Andalite Chronicles that there are, like, spoken word commands versus thought-speak commands to uh-huh. interface with technology. 
So, like, do you, that thought speak is definitely a different mode of communication. The fact that it gets translated into something verbal, I think, is a conceit for printing thought speak. But, mm, yeah. And they don't have books, right? So. But they do have specific terms that, like, Axe uses, and, like, like that Yurks have, like, daps and lumber is, like, a Yurk word. And we're right, talking about, like, right. why do Yurks have this kind of language? Right. Joyce Weaver responded to that comment on Tumblr and said, We know Andalites use sign language from Andalite Chronicles. Oswald Privileges said, I remember it being mentioned in Andalite Chronicles, yeah, but interpreted that more like a work-based necessity like human divers. Joy said it might come up again later, and it might be visual language from people with hypermobile eyes on stalks is a fun thought in general. You just look really disturbed. Okay. Um, Can you say that last sentence again? Visual language from people with hypermobile eyes on stalks. Like, they can look in all directions, so visual language is not such a stretch. Like, I mean, yeah, some humans, like, do use visual language, but, like... We are more limited in where we are looking than Andalites are, so... Yeah, so, I was like, just if you pick like... up your hind legs while looking away from someone, that could mean something. Because presumably <laughs> you expect other people to be able to see it. Well, I think it's... Yeah. If I'm interpreting that right, it's more that if you're standing in a at a par- at an Andalite party and you are, you know, tromping on the hors d'oeuvre-flavored grass, <laughs> your eyes could read sign language from anywhere in the room. So... You could be receiving communication from people who are on the other side of the room and behind you mm-hmm. instead of in sign language for humans. We can only get those cues from someone who's using well, so sign language in front of us. Maybe yeah. the Andalite party is like a bunch of people standing around randomly by themselves and like they're <laughs> keeping track of it. Like the stock eyes are swiveling around, yeah. but mm-hmm. they're not really. They, they probably wouldn't clump in little circles the way people do. Yes, although. As I was thinking about that, I was remembering the like few times that I've been in groups of people from the deaf community mm-hmm. and how important it was for me as not someone who's particularly fluent, like mm-hmm. an FDFI, but not particularly fluent, to have single conversations mm. because it's Ooh, visual. Group conversations, so group conversations yeah. are incredibly challenging. And when you have gotten used to that and you're part of the community, it's much easier. But for me, I was like, I... I I literally can only do, I can only talk to one person at a time because mm-hmm. I, that is the amount of focus that I can do. So I was trying to imagine how much more confusing it would be to be in a group conversation where not only are you communicating with multiple people, but you can see multiple conversations <laughs> happening at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Getting all of that information into your brain would just be so difficult. That would be a lot. It is funny uh-huh. that they have this very good eyesight and you'd think, and they have, you know, so many fingers, mm-hmm. like you'd think visual language would be relatively easy for them to develop, mm-hmm. even without the ability to produce, you know, complex sounds. Yeah. But they also developed the psychic sense, mm-hmm. which I could see being really evolutionarily useful. I guess that I don't need to ask about you know, why that caught on, because if you can send a psychic scream to someone, then they can, you know, dodge out of danger real well. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's right. It's like, when you have the universal thought symbols, too, I mean, that, that's what I was thinking of as a visual language, that, that Mm. if you're beaming something to someone else's brain, it doesn't need to be words. words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So having that psychic scream Mm. is a very direct way to do that. And then, of course, you can refine it over time. Of like, right, my psychic right. scream is not just noise. It's there's a jaguar. And like, there's <laughs> but it's interesting to like figure out how that would develop. Then, once they interacted with other species, mm-hmm. sentient species that would have a need for a different kind of communication. 
Well, it's just reminding me that, like, they, they talk about universal symbols and, like, mm-hmm. all the species do seem to be able to communicate and, like, you can morph into things and the brains always connect in some way. Yeah. Like, so it is kind of, like, part of the world building is the fundamental thing of communication is words and all sapient species share it. It's, like, it isomorphic words, between things. Well, I don't know. The, yeah. the, like, universal thought symbols or whatever mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, like, yeah. It's still symbolic in the way that... Yeah, it's not just thinking in pictures or something. It's, yeah. Right. And I do think possibly at the beginning, like when we met Elfinger in book one, there was an intention in the series to do more with that because I think he does send them pictures and like feelings. And then that drops out a little bit, I think maybe because it's just easier to have acts be verbal. And Esplin sends out his like dread aura, right? Which is never really explained in canon, but makes sense to me as as a thought feeling. Yeah, I do like that. Oh, that was it for Andalites. Um, let's talk about the Animorphs as characters. Animorphs as characters. All right, we have some Rachel and Taylor thoughts from Rena. One interesting thing about the comparison between Rachel and Taylor, a lot of Rachel's good points are defined or connected to the people around her. She's protective of her friends. She's honorable and loyal to the group. She has a strong sense of duty to their cause. Whereas Taylor, as someone who was abandoned by all her friends was completely alone and had no emotional anchor whatsoever. So I think the idea that Rachel and Taylor are similar may be rooted in that Rachel could be like Taylor if she did not have the love of the Animorphs or her family to guide her. Hmm. I kind of like that, because we were saying like that doesn't really make sense to compare them, Mm-mm. except for visually, but that they both sort of needed people, but Rachel has these real connections, and mm-hmm. Taylor I really doesn't. like this, yeah. 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 I like that idea. I mean, I think it's a good indication of what... I mean, and it's a nice thought that the thing about Rachel is that we've talked about is her loyalty and absolute devotion to her friends. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the many times that I get annoyed with the characterizations of Rachel is when <laughs> the writers forget that that's her underlying motivation. Mm-hmm. That she's you know angry when her family or friends are threatened, mm-hmm. not just as a base state. And yes. it just happens to be that she's living in a heightened threat scenario all the time yeah. because her friends are constantly in, in danger. Yeah. But it's not that she is inherently... She is not, yeah. She's not mean right yeah. Unlike Taylor, who seems to have internalized some of her experiences in a way that just make her angry and bitter and violent mm-hmm. towards the people around her without that, that good side, as Rena says. Yeah. No, I like that very much. So another character point that Rena had was on book 30. She says, I read an interesting post that talked about this book, so, you know, we're cribbing from someone. Thank you, someone. And it noted that Marco's entire MO so far in Animorphs is that his family are the most important thing to him. Yet, this book has him try to flip that completely, to sacrifice his family for the greater good. Mm-hmm. For random strangers, basically. It's no wonder that he breaks down and struggles so hard with carrying through his actions. Mm. But I do think this gets at sort of a fun- the fundamental, like conflict in Marco's personality where he does put his family before anything but there's this part of him that can't ignore the larger sense of duty like that thought Mm. process he goes through in five of like whatever I don't need to do this I I don't want to like do this to my dad and oh somewhere there are some there's like Axe's parents are missing his son and want to know one of their sons is alive and oh darn it I have to help with this Mm. right it's just he can't avoid that. Mm-hmm. And it really, it's really um, clinched for him in 35 when he gets to talk to his mom. And she's like, family's not the most important thing, buddy. Yeah, and, yeah. And that really... Uh, it's such a good arc. 
Yeah. And I think we were talking maybe in our first mailbag. I, we, we've said this before, but that like it seemed like he didn't have a good arc, but ne- like he just hadn't really gotten to the good exactly. parts of it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Rena's other thought on book thirty was. I agree that Jake has become such a good leader, and it's interesting how you were comparing his manipulations of the group back in 21 to his absence in the group in this one, how he knows the team so well and can bring them around to certain actions, and I think the reason that Jake can do that and Marco can't is, as you said, his lack of sincerity. When Marco manipulates, he thinks of everyone only as tools of the moment, but when Jake manipulates, he acknowledges them as people and is shouldering the burden of both what will happen and how they might be changed because of it. And because he takes that weight so seriously, that's why everyone is willing to be manipulated by him, even when they recognize that he's doing it. I thought that was really nice insight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very insightful. How does Cassie's manipulation fit into that framework? Well, she definitely takes people seriously as people. I feel like when she, when Jake manipulates people, like, it's not that he's not good at it, but he, like, sort of does it as part of this whole general leadership thing. Whereas when Cassie manipulates people, it's like, I don't know, it's like cutting in with a razor blade. Like, she's just Mm. so much more powerful at it. And I'm actually not sure that Jake is overly good at manipulating people. Yeah. I think he's very good at leading them, but Uh it's through kind of straightforward instruction and orders and so on. Whereas when Cassie or Marco even are trying to get things done, they're not doing it from a position of, I'm your prince, I am the boss, let's Mm -hmm. do it this way. But are instead trying to essentially kind of manipulate, but convince people somehow mm-hmm. to do that, and so they have to be a little more precise in yeah. their approach yeah. um, in order to make people still kind of do what they want mm-hmm. them to do. And that's one of the reasons that like evil Cassie would be such a terror. Yeah. You know, <laughs> she would be really able to manipulate people in ways that would could be quite you know, harsh. Like I imagine she's because of her emotional intelligence, like I imagine her being the kind of person who could pinpoint the thing that makes you the most unhappy with yourself or like the most anxious or whatever, and just Mm -hmm. kind of poke that in order to get you to do something Mm -hmm. like evil Cassie could. Yeah. I think there's a part of it that's like Jake is more comfortable living in shades of gray or like he doesn't have a clear sense of right and wrong in the same way. So he knows Mm -hmm. like, he knows what he wants to accomplish, but he mm-hmm. kind of respects that people can agree to disagree, or he respects people's agency. Like, when he needs to bias to volunteer in 33, he needs to bias to do it himself. He can't, like, come right out mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. demand it of him. But when Cassie knows something is wrong, it doesn't matter that the other person might think that they're the right, right? Cassie knows yeah. that that person yeah. is wrong, mm-hmm. and I think that's what lets her be so cutting. Yeah. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, she 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 knows the right course. And like if yeah. somebody's opinion stands in the way, that doesn't matter at all. OK, so we have thoughts from AA on 37, 37. Sorry, I forgot the air quotes. These days, my primary complaint with this book is that when discussing what if Rachel was the leader hypotheticals, people usually go, we saw that in 37 and it was just bad. Ugh. When that's not what that's about at all. I mean, aside from the fact that the book is garbage and shouldn't be used as evidence of anything. Exactly. She didn't write that. Jake and Rachel start out with a whole lot of similarities. In the construction site, Rachel even tries to comfort Cassie and Tobias as they freak out over seeing murder for the first time, while Jake grabs a pipe and tries to rush Visser 3. Rachel, as she is now, should only ever lead a charge, but she could have been conflicted, quick-thinking leader Rachel, using and fearing for her friends. Hmm. 
Just such an interesting point. If Rachel had had that responsibility, would she have been able to broaden her view? And would Jake have become, I think we talked about this a little bit, like would Jake have become the sort of like focused warrior tank of the group? That's a good question. I see it working out. Those seem like valid character arcs for the Uh two of them. It is obvious to me that the Animorphs would not have lasted this long. Especially, like, Marco is so much more of an outsider in that group dynamic. It's maybe better for the Jake and Cassie relationship, but maybe not. Like, if Jake doesn't feel responsible for the whole group, he might, like, do reckless stuff to save Cassie a lot more than he does in canon. Yeah, and he also seems to have a somewhat looser relationship to morality than Cassie does, which maybe is somewhat mitigated by his needing to consider everyone's opinions in the group, and he might just kind of... Also, Cassie's lieutenant, so what role does Marco play, right, if Rachel's leaving? Mm. Oh, yeah, if Cassie's Rachel's lieutenant. Yeah, because he's not just kind of conflict with them all the time. Right. No, he cannot be the heart. Mm -mm. It would be great. I think he and Rachel could maybe work together well as, like, a strategy team, but I don't know if they would. I don't know if they'd be able to get there. Yeah. Our last... Animorphs' characters thought was from Kit on quote-unquote 37. I think I'd like this one a lot better if Rachel had just flat-out said Marco had an Oedipus complex. Spicy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was part of the comment I would just like to say. I don't know that we need to discuss that. Just wanted to read that one. Spicy. (laughs) I'm appalled. All right. Do we want... We've done a bunch of categories. Do we want to do one of the fun stuff things? Yeah. Um, Let's do Animorphs the Musical. Would Jake be a director? <laughs> I feel like yes, but I'm not sure he'd be very good at it. I don't think he would have a vision of it. Yeah. I think that he could be like the stage manager. <laughs> no. Jake's the lead. Jake's the lead. He's the, he's like, the slightly boring romantic lead. He's the slightly disappointing <laughs> romantic lead. They cast because he's Done. like, he looks the part. He can probably learn the skills. I think Rachel's yeah. the director. She would have a lot of, yeah. But Marco would also have a lot of thoughts. He would be playing, like, the villain. And he would just always be interfering with Rachel's direction. Yeah, he's asking about his motivation all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Cassie's the stage crew. She will not. Yes. She will not perform in the musical. That is that is so accurate. Yes, I believe she'll that. swoon a little bit watching Jake's like <laughs> slightly tepid ballad. <laughs> oh no! Yes, Jake is playing opposite Melissa Chapman, and they have no chemistry. Mm. That sounds right. Yeah. So an axe, axe comic relief. Yes, is the comic relief part. He doesn't understand why it's funny, but mm-hmm. he's very funny at it. I think Tobias would be this the stage manager. Oh, I thought Cassie would do it. No, no, she can be stage she's crew. crew. She's crew. Oh, okay. And she doesn't Tobias want a leadership role in any capacity. Okay. Yeah. Where he, like, he executes the vision. Oh, the yeah. Sets. Okay. Great. Builds the sets, <laughs> runs the show quietly from behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, so if... Marco also helps Jake with his kissing scenes. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. I love it. (laughs) They get together and rehearse all the time. I can't wait till we get to the shipping category. (laughs) So we did also see an Animorphs musical, like way back, like right after the last mailbag episode. And then we didn't talk about it because we were like, we'll talk about it in the mailbag episode. And then I wrote it down in my list of things to talk about in the mailbag episode. But I also like don't remember the musical. You can watch it now online. Yeah. It was, um, it was weird. (laughs) Yeah, so there is, like, a one-act Animorphs musical that some people at Yale made, like, ten years ago? Is that... 
Wasn't Cassie white? Like there was some everyone weird, was white, which is weird because it's like choices, a, an maybe. Ivy League college. There's a lot of diversity. I don't know yeah. why that happened. Also, Rachel was really short. I realize that's not the most important casting thing, but I, <laughs> I objected to it. And, they and did, Tobias wasn't in it. Yeah, they wrote Tobias out. <laughs> it exists. I don't do you know. remember? Do you remember how Cassie and Jake? Oh, their love song, song. The love song. While they birds. are birds. The bird love song was truly brilliant. <laughs> No, I love that. <laughs> it was great. I think we'll need to watch it again and give you guys yeah. a... Okay. We'll do a live stream. <laughs> yes! Yes! I'm so in for that. Okay, alright. Everyone can hit play at the same time. Yep. Live stream in a work musical. It's gonna happen. Whew, okay. So I think that takes care of that category. Okay. Let's do Sorting the Animorphs. Ooh. So before we talk about any of the Sorting the Animorphs categories we have. Mm-hmm. I just want to share that Twitter user Psyched180 made Pokemon trainer cards for Axe and Cassie, and we're going to link them in the show notes. Oh, please finish this set. I'm yes. so into this. Yes. I'm so into this. I They're want incredible. them. incredible. Yeah. So we also have the question. I don't remember where this question came from, but I wrote it down in my list of things to address when we got to mailbag. <laughs> What D&D class and also alignments would all of the Animorphs be, including you? Oh, this was a, this was a question posed on Facebook. Ah, excellent. Okay. Um, well, someone pointed out that all of the Animorphs would be Moon Druids because that gives them the shape-shifting power at second level. Mm-hmm. You could do it with like a Druid multi-class into their other type of thing. But mm-hmm. I think it's like, let's just say that the the morphing does not have to do with their character class. Let's talk about Because otherwise their, it's like, not interesting. Their common yeah. styles. So what are the obvious ones? Um, Rachel's a barbarian. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. say more. Definitely. Jake is the um, fighter subclass that allows mm-hmm. him to like give orders. It's like a martial expert or I don't know. He... There's okay, some kind yeah. of a commander, battle commander, fighter subclass. That, oh, perfect. Yep, that, that's know, super good. You yep. be in charge of things. Cassie is the true druid of the group yep. because yep. of her animal affinity, mm-hmm. for sure. Also, the fact that she can sort of, like, turn into animals and fight until exhausted and then keep going. It's, like, very... Oh, yeah. Like She's really tapped mm-hmm. into that power more that than the That power. endurance yeah. power, for yeah. sure. Okay. Tobias, and I think this is going to be controversial, is a rogue because he mostly stays out of combat, but when he does get involved, it's for, like, a very decisive, sudden, unexpected strike. Yes. Which matches he, with the way yeah. rogues like to fight. Fights people he's not already engaged with. Yeah. yeah. Hax, I'm going to argue, is a monk, because he prefers oh. to fight in his Andalite form. And tail fighting is, like, unarmed combat for oh. Andalites. And he has that kind nice. of, like, I'm using, I'm in touch with my body. Uh-huh. Like a fighting yeah, style. he has this sort of spiritual approach to fighting, like yeah. when he does the ritual with Tobias and then teaches him to tail fight. Yeah. So Marco, I think, is a he's the toughest one for me to place based on his combat style. Uh-huh. I think there's an argument that the group doesn't have a magic user yet, and mm-hmm. Marco gets to be the magic user. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make it doesn't sense fit with his combat because but... it's not how he he fights or whatever. But but he is the sort of intellectual and strategy as magic maybe right so if he's a wizard he could be kind of like the he's also kind of like the glass cannon like he can maybe do some pull some cool moves but he's always getting injured and almost dead he's always traditionally don't have a lot of not good armor yeah right 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 and are easy to hit Mm -hmm. um you could also make the argument that he is a bard because of his he's like humor (laughs) he's funny he's flashy (laughs) most people don't like him Mm -hmm. um kind of an acquired taste 
But, you know, good, some, his charisma can be an asset in mm-hmm. negotiations and things like that. Mm-hmm. You is clearly a bard in the sense that nobody likes bards. <laughs> nobody likes you. Mm, perfect. Okay. Gray, did you have any thoughts on this? Uh, no. <laughs> I feel like Ted's done a great summary. I don't have a lot to add. But I also, also don't know anything about d and <laughs> Do we want to discuss alignments? No, alignment's stupid. <laughs> okay, great. We'll move on. Check. We also talked about how we want to do an Animorphs villain ranking. I do want to do that. Yeah. Wait. Who are our options? Yeah. All Animorphs villains. Wait, wait. Oh, shoot. A list? <laughs> no, that, I was, that's exactly what I was like. Is there a list? Let's on make the a list. Internet? I did not prepare this. I'm sorry. I didn't prepare a villain okay. list. Okay. Well, let's just come up with them and then we'll rank yeah. them as they come. Okay. Up. Great. Okay. Well, Vis- Viscera 3 Viscera. versus Viscera 1. Viscer 1 is a way better villain than Viscer 3. Okay. Are we going to go based on, like, how effective they are versus the Animorphs, or just, like, how how, how great they are as villains? Like, I just think sort of second. A, yeah, yeah, just sort it's of like an abstract, a, like... Je ne sais quoi. Exactly, yes, okay. Viscer yeah. 1, way better villain than Viscer 3. Okay, Taylor. I'd put her below this, the, the, the top two, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, but she's up there. Yeah, she's she's a great character. Um, Viscer 4, bottom oh, by far. Bottom, oh, completely yeah. ineffective. Yeah. Um, Chapman. I'd say below Between Taylor, Taylor, above, above Visser 4. four. Yeah. yeah. Are you yeah. writing this down, Gray? Yes, oh, thank you. Cryak. Ooh. Oh, you know, he's not actually that effective. I think we should do Cryak and the Drode separately. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly what Cryak has done is appeared as an eye in Jake's dreams. Okay. Cryak's so, like, at the bottom. No. Oh, I don't know. I think he's think You think, think Cryak is a better villain than Chapman? I think he's a better villain than Visser 4. 4. Oh, that's right. I already <laughs> forgot about Visser 4. Well, he's been written out of time, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, okay, so Crank is better than Mr. Four, but not as good as Chapman. Yep. Yeah, I think not as good as Chapman. Although Chapman's been pretty pathetic the last, like, 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Okay, what about Alaran? Ooh. Ooh. I don't even know if he counts, because we he's... We can count him. He's, 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 he's kind of like a tragic villain at this point. Yeah. But he's like a villain in, in the Herpajir Chronicles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I... I'm going to put him... I'm going to put him above Taylor. Next <gasps> wow. to Next to his... Mm. His counterpart. I don't think he's enough of a villain to be yeah. above Taylor. You don't think so. I think he can maybe put him above Chapman. Yeah. He's more interesting than Chapman. He's more interesting than Chapman. But I think Chapman, below Taylor. Taylor. Yeah. Below Taylor. Yeah. I see that argument. I see that argument. Okay. What, what about, about the droid? Uh, I think definitely above Aldrin. Okay. Above below Taylor? Taylor? Maybe. I don't know where he's... He's more annoying than Taylor. Yeah, but Taylor's that makes just, him a very effective Taylor's villain. Taylor's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor's okay. better than so the between I can't, I can't right. let the droid be Taylor. What about David? Ooh. <laughs> Top of the list. Top of the list? David is the best villain in the Animorphs. No. So, yes. Soraya is the best. <laughs> yes, okay. I uh, I will concede. No, I, All right. no David's better than Soraya. Sorry, Jenny. I'm going to argue with you on this I'm one. sorry, Gray. Gray wanted to be at the top of the list. I cannot possibly agree with you. Soraya is more competent and does less damage. That makes David a better villain. David, they take three... Like, David is the most devastating episode. I, I think David needs to be at the top. Like, All right. he's not He's not, He's not. not better in any direct comparison, but you just can't compete for this annoying little brat almost kills all the Animorphs multiple yep. times. Right? And, like, right. does so much damage to them in what they have to do to him. Like, it's just, ugh, so good. Yeah. Because right. it's like, if Soraya... If she like, stuck Soraya around, should, if we hadn't killed her off. Soraya right. should have just been able to kill all the animals, yes. right? They got like, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, David should not have been able to do so much damage. Okay, That's I'll take it. Can we rank the Garatron, even though we wrote that book out of canon? No. Okay. Garatron's right. better than Visser 4. 
Sorry, Mr. <laughs> okay, that I'll, I'll accept that. The force, just the force villain. All right, what other villains do we have? Aftran's like another antagonist who becomes a friend. Oh, yeah, um, I don't know. I don't, she know can, if she counts I don't think villain. she can be a villain. Yeah. <laughs> Tem- <laughs> Ooh, Tamrash is good. I like Tamrash. Okay. He's like pretty cool. He's not really that effective. No. Is he I still better? like I still like Chapman better than Tamrash. Okay, we can put him below Chapman. Who's below Chapman? Cryak. I feel like Cryak has to go above Tamrash. Because Cryak is like pulling the strings on Tamrash. Yeah. Is Tom a villain? No. No. That's Tamrash slash whoever Tom's York is now. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A, that's like a weird note to me that Tom's York is not a consistent person throughout the series. Yeah, that's right. True. Jake doesn't seem to reflect that. Like this is a different York right. that I'm interacting with. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Because, no, because he's actually like Tom. Right. The Nartek, the Nartek Queen. She's better than Visser Four, just because she <laughs> like she's everyone's awesome. better than Visser Four. Everyone's yeah. Uh, but is she better than like Garrettron? I think she might yeah. be. She's better, She's than, better than the Garrotron. But not as good as Temrash, right? Not as good as Temrash. Okay, done. I'm definitely spelling like half the stuff wrong. But this, is a, this is a good great. list. Write it, let's write in some answers and we'll, we'll add them in. Like people, listeners, dear listeners. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can tell us who we missed. I've come around on Taylor. I agree with your assessment. All right. So just the last thing in this category, I just wanted to mention that Claire, our guest for 19, made a playlist for the Animorphs characters <gasps> and we will link it in the episode notes. Oh, Ooh, yeah. uh, I want to listen to that. Yeah. So that's it for sorting the animorphs. Greg, it's your choice. Uh, logistics. Logistics. Okay. Do you guys remember how far above the year pool Cassie was when she started morphing to whale in book 34? Stupid Not far distances. Enough. I saw this comment. Yeah, so Rena left a comment on 34. Oh no, did she do math? Because it's not going to be good. <laughs> she said, You guys still haven't discussed the most ridiculous element of that scene. After falling from some great height, I didn't double check if it was mentioned exactly. Cassie begins to morph whale at a hundred feet what? above the Yerk pool. One hundred feet. Everything in the entire universe is nonsense. Do you know how long it takes to fall one hundred feet? Rena asks. Not very long. From a dead stop on Earth, it takes only two and a half seconds to hit the ground from that height. The Horkbajir planet has to be at least marginally similar to Earth in size and density, else the Animorphs would have had trouble physically adjusting upon arrival. Okay, I'm good. Which means, you know, similar gravity acceleration. Mm-hmm. Given that this series plays fast and loose with concepts like physics, <laughs> but let's grant that. I mean, roughly similar. Yeah. Even if you're being super generous and assuming that Cassie's osprey wings have slowed her down quite significantly, she still has to be falling at least 25 miles per hour. Probably faster, given that if she was any slower, she'd make an easy target for the Yurk Dracon Beans. It's been established in previous books that morphs take around two minutes to complete. I would quibble with that. I think two minutes is a lot, a lot longer than they've taken in a lot of cases. Yeah. At least recently. Yeah. I think probably they could make it under a minute. Cassie didn't fully morph, and maybe she was somehow morphing at super speed, but she would still need 45 seconds to a minute of falling time. That means that at bare minimum, Cassie needed at least 1,600 feet of falling space and probably more like 2,500. Rena says, I can forgive wonky space magic morphing, but I just can't forgive a physics error that egregious. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gesturing wildly because I agree with you, but also when you start throwing out physics, uh-huh, then uh-huh. why do I have to believe that this is technology and not magic? Yeah, it's just, they just, uh, the ghostwriter was just a typo. Wait, what? <laughs> the whole series, <laughs> technology, the whole book 34, 100 feet. 
Animorphs, but... <laughs> Got messed up somewhere in there. The rest uh, is history. They're all morphing all over the place. <laughs> okay, so Rena had another comment on 32. You know, someone actually did the science of the Ant-Man in Thanos' butt theory. <laughs> and found um, that it almost certainly would not have worked. You should look it up on YouTube. It's fascinating. No. I did not look it up on YouTube in preparing for this episode, so I, I have not witnessed it. However, I don't remember the exact numbers, and Andalites are not nearly as durable as Thanos's. And, of course, ears and brains are more delicate anyway. So the anamorphan ear method might have had better odds. Seems valid. I don't it. want to think about the durability of Thanos's butt. I really... <laughs> I'm going to maintain my butt cannon that this would have killed Thanos. <laughs> yeah, we just won't look it up on YouTube, and then we'll, we'll yeah. never have to be disproved. Great, let's do that. Okay, AA had a comment on 36... I can believe taxons are air breathers, only good near the surface, and couldn't endure pressure deeper down. But, uh, see, the thing is, back in 15, Visitor 3 came to visit the underwater base, escorted by hork in scuba gear. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. That's my most enduring sticking point with this book. There are stupid Visitor 3 plans that feel like they work for him, and then there's fish bajir instead of using existing tech. <laughs> Hi, somebody had to modify a scuba point. gear yeah. to fit a hork it's bajir. It's such a good point. And then they forgot about it. Thing. Yeah. Oh, it's so bad. I like the idea that the hork bajir just, they cut up all the white suits. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> just run out. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't use them again because they just went through too many wetsuits. The budget oh couldn't support it. God, they had to instead funny. build a, spa- oh, build a new oh, spaceship. Boy. Okay, oh, I had a different point on 35. My big question about the voicemail is how Visser 1 knew what number to use. Marco and his dad have moved twice from their old place to somewhere cheaper when Marco's dad fell apart and then somewhere else as he got rehired. That's a good point. I bet, I bet Edris was like creepily following the activities uh, of You're right, you're right. Mm, that yeah. makes sense. Yep, okay, great. Accepted. Knock that one out. All right. Huggin, or Hugin. Uh, had a comment on (laughs) Megamorphs 3. The fact that we haven't had a Yerk plot entirely focused on destroying Lamb Chop, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and Los Del Rio is the biggest plot hole in the series. Wait, what? (laughs) This is a comment on the thing where Visser 4 wanted to destroy Henry IV at the Battle of Agincourt. (laughs) Because because it's such an earworm. (laughs) It's such an earworm. And so really what the Yerk should have been doing is destroying Lamb Chop for the song that never ends, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and Los Del Rio, who sing the Macarena. Biggest plot hole in the series. At the very least, teenage hosts can absolutely make their year's lives hell. And it's nice that we see that here. Fair enough. <laughs> That's it for logistics. All right. We're going straight into your logistics. Thank oh, you for making great. my choice easy. It's, it's next on in my document. Great. Hugin, who we still don't know how to pronounce, had a comment on our second visitor episode. One thing I wonder about. Your pools we see don't lack for anything. Is that true of natural pools on the home world? Maybe in those pools, it's possible to starve due to a cloudy week or overfeeding, eliminating too many nutrients. That would explain why yerks are parasites. Infesting ged is their only natural way to move from an overcrowded, toxic, or under-resourced pool to a clean new one. I really yeah. like that. Yeah, it's actually. a great theory, because otherwise, yeah. why the heck do they need to get into these other bodies, and they need the neural complexity to control the bodies yeah. to move them? I think this is a great... I would yeah. be so down yeah. from more, yeah. like ecology about all these different species. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes. It's so, we're so interested in real There's animals. There's so much hunger the for this. Animals. Yeah. Yeah. I want more of that. AA has a comment on 34. I feel like the pro infestation side of fandom, 
Side what? note, I mostly included this comment because I'm just fascinated by the pro-infestation side of fandom. Wait. That sounds like it's going beyond, like, Yerks might be good therapists in under-enthusiastic consent. This is, like, really messed up. I Wait, Maybe it is more like infestation under-enthusiastic consent. I will read the rest of the comment. Okay. I feel like the pro-infestation side of fandom borrows liberally from this book, the Cassie book of Aldrea, okay. and Ixilla for their ideas of what infestation is like. A give and take, an inherent cooperation, thoughts can be kept secret, and you can switch control off when one person gets tired. This is just a fascinating view on the fandom. I have questions. All right. Yeah. We, we'll have to circle them. back to this when we're finished with the series. <laughs> I'm really curious. Yeah. yeah. Well, because it makes sense. My take is that that is like romanticizing what the Yerks are doing to humans. Yes. Yeah. Is pretty bad. <laughs> but a fantasy of an Aldrea like. You know, mind sharing experience yeah, is totally is totally that. legit. You can see why Tim well maybe wants ill in his head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay. you know, I don't I don't know where we're landing on this. Confused. Very yeah. confused. Fascinating. Slightly concerned. A little concerned. <laughs> a little concerned. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I'm concerned. I feel like you know okay. people are into all sorts of weird stuff. Huh. We had a question from Kit on our episode 31 comments. If you ever have another mailbag episode, which it turns <gasps> out we have. I would love to hear your opinions on what character differences we can see slash speculate about Tom's Yerk post number six versus Temrash. Well, I was just saying this earlier. I feel like there's been no difference. Mm. Yeah. I mean, would Temrash have acted the way that Tom did in 31? I don't know. I feel like we don't get a very robust picture of Tom's Yerk No, so what we learned about Temrash is that Temrash, like all Yerks, will give up when he feels like he has no other options left. And maybe that Tom in 31 seemed a little more willing to do risky and reckless things, mm-hmm. rather than be like, oh, well, I'm going to starve. It's true. Okay. But we did see that Temrash tried a bunch of stuff before giving up. Mm-hmm. So maybe Tom's yeah, New York was still in that a, position. Yeah, it wasn't right, just yeah. give up right away. He yeah. really exhausted all the options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we don't really have a good answer to that one. Okay. All right. That's it for that. Great. Back to you. Oh, um, oh I don't do shipping. Then I choose shape of the series and... Ted can do that shit. Because, and this is important, I think it's weird to ship 14. <laughs> Except what for Tobias and Rachel. <laughs> what? What makes what? a 14 year old bird what? okay to ship with people? This is a bird. Because what? I love Tobias them. Tobias is the most permanently 13 years old of all the characters. Oh, he cannot be so older true. than a 13 year old and two hour human. All right, I pick, I, since I started us shipping, <laughs> it's my fault. I take full responsibility. I can see why it feels weird to you, but I feel like shipping them with each other when we're immersed in, like, their minds in these books. Like, sure, sure. it's not, you know. I shipped them at the time, when yeah. I was 11. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually I was the age. thing, yeah. is that I'm oh, not yeah. that age. I am yeah. older, and therefore I'm like, let it, me read this book for yeah. small children and then tell those small children to go make out. <laughs> I feel like you can just, you know... Want them to be together and happy. I and do. not, you know. I want yeah. them all to be together and happy. Let's, maybe we need to vote. Is the council pro shipping? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm right, so glad so we established this precedent. <laughs> do we have it. more to say about it? Well, I have, I have <laughs> a bunch of points on the shipping, shipping, in the shipping category. No, no, I've been outruled. It's fine. I know how this works. So, shipping category. AA had thoughts on 38. This book is why I don't ship Marco and Axe, except Marco one-sidedly being attracted. Axe just reacts so strongly to a peer of his own species. Does he, do? he reacts? <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. Yes, he does, Ted. <laughs> 
so strongly to appear of his own species when he's never regarded Marco with nearly as much interest. It feels like he's met someone he's attracted to for the first time in years and is polaxed. It's in the comment. I didn't make that up. And then A goes on to say, if I ship Axe with any of the others, it's Cassie. He recognizes here that she watches and understands him on a high level, and here he lets himself be vulnerable so she can comfort him. Of course, the flip side is that while their major interactions are very interesting, they're also widely spaced. (laughs) You heard me. (laughs) They're also widely spaced and completely non-reciprocal. So there's that problem again. I kind of like that, the idea that, like, Axe would maybe have a thing for Cassie because, like, she offers this strong emotional connection and Mm -hmm. he's, like, very lonely and alone. It also feels pretty one-sided, though. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. I don't think Cassie's... And Cassie's, have... like, help, helps out everybody that way yes, throughout the series. Yes. So it's, it's... Yeah, no, I wouldn't ship them, but, yeah, I can see where A is coming from here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can... Yeah. It's, it's interesting that it's uniquely one-sided, that mm-hmm. the heart of the group helps Axe in that way, but he mm-hmm. never, like... Like, we sometimes... We see a lot of, actually, like, Axe and Jake... Like we, I guess we get a little bit of that from Axe's mm, point of view, but mm-hmm. it's never quite—it never quite. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like it would be romantic to me. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely not. Uh, more on Marco and Axe. Rena on book thirty says, "Here, here's a random theory on why Marco would say Axe is blunt. Maybe he's already tried to ask Axe out or something, and Axe bluntly turned him down." Oh. <laughs> I would also just like to add. I was listening to episode 39 today, and the thing at the end where Jake and Cassie have this private thought speak exchange, where Jake, you know, thought speaks to her, mm-hmm. it's the Dharma and Greg moment, as Marco says, and then Cassie responds out loud, and Tobias is like, what? And Marco's like, it's private thought speak, obviously. They're having their Dharma and Greg moment. Two theories on that. One is that Marco's just really, you know, paying attention. It's like, oh, Jake is privately thought speaking Cassie. Like, definitely this is happening. He's just, like, very aware of this relationship because he's pining for Jake. Or maybe he was included in the thought speak. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's go with that one. Because <laughs> it's very out of character for him to be emotionally aware of it's an true. undercurrent and Tobias not to, especially when it's one Tobias should be very familiar with. Yeah, that's a good OT3 point. OT3 is so, happening. As we yeah, speak. the OT3 is happening. They just aren't, they aren't willing to say it in the text because it would be too scandalous. And they do have some limits. Those limits are not torture of a no, no, teenager. But. Okay, I, I buy that. Yeah. Um, AA has some other shipping thoughts on 32. Uh, I want to call your attention to book four. When meeting Andalite-shaped Axe for the first time, Rachel mouths, he's cute, to Cassie. Rachel is down to see the attractiveness of non-humans, and it's great. Mm. In some Prince Rachel AU, where she's the leader from the start, I can see that being a thing. Oh. Interesting. I can see that, too. I I think Rachel's being sarcastic in in book four. Yeah? Yeah. What I remember is that more like, like, well, he's cute, like, like, ha-ha. I never read it as sarcastic. Mm-hmm. I guess I did read it as, like, kind of silly. I feel like yeah, I don't know. my memory is that there's something in the context of the scene that makes it differently. But mm-hmm. totally see totally see the romance between Prince Rachel and X happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if she'd be into him. I could see him being into her, especially because he really liked Estrid's, like, fighting. Yeah. So. All right. Finally, in this category, we had a comment from Lauren on 32. She says... I fleshed out my double wedding theory a bit. Yay! First of all, there would definitely be a fast forward to them being of an appropriate age, including Tobias, somehow. Second, Marco, as best man, 
but have very complicated feelings about Jake and Cassie getting married and not knowing how he'll fit into that relationship. Axe, as Angelite of Honor, <laughs> would be similarly torn between happiness that both his prince and his shorm have found love and fear of what it will mean for him in the future, especially since he's decided to stay on Earth. Marco will deal with his angst by hitting on a bunch of women at the reception and being rejected. Axe will cope by eating a lot of cake. Mm-hmm. At some point, they'll find each other and realize that all they really want to do is be silly and dance together. So they will, and they'll both have a great time. Mm-hmm. Between the dancing and chatting during Axe's morphing breaks, they'll be reminded of how much they admire each other and how they share this warrior-slash-jokester duality. Marco will also finally admit to himself that he's attracted to Axe's strangely beautiful human form, just as he was attracted to both Jake and Cassie, and Rachel, question mark. <laughs> and, and himself! <laughs> it's true, and he would be. And it's a part of himself that's worth embracing and exploring. So while J and C and R and T are honeymooning, Marco and Axe will spend all of their time together snuggling. I assume Axe's fur is quite soft, and watching TV at Axe's scoop, where their budding love will bloom. The end. I love it very much. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank it's you. a great vision. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. We need a whole extended fic where this happens. <laughs> yes, Lauren, please write this for us. I mean, a retelling of what happens in canon. Right. Sorry. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That Please is write a book that is the same as the end of the actual series, which is this. <laughs> also, if you write it quickly enough, we will try and get Gray to read it and think it's real. <laughs> Sounds right. Perfect. Is that shipping? That's the end of shipping. I'm going to choose morphology and the council. Ooh, okay. All right. So this is, you know, the podcast and the people in it. So we had a question from AJ on Facebook, which was, Emily Ellett is going to be a guest star? So cool. Can I ask how you managed to get her to appear? How did they know that? I posted about <laughs> And now everyone who's listening to this will also know. It's so exciting. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. really excited about Emily's it. Emily's coming on um, episode 42, which is a Rachel episode, since she is the narrator of the new Rachel audiobooks. Um, and I think that episode is going to drop around the time that um, book seven comes out. So Excellent. make sure to listen to uh, that and support Emily and the new project that Scholastic is, is yeah. doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we reached out to her after her amazing AMA on the Animorph subreddit, which you all can check out. And she seemed like a really cool person. And it turns out she is a fan of the podcast. So yeah. we asked her on. And we're super excited to talk to her in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's going to be great. Also, there was a related question from Rena on 32. It's funny, talking about nice Rachel's valley girl voice, because my mental voice for her always had at least a tiny bit of valley girl in her, maybe due to this book. And now that the official audiobooks are coming out, I'm a bit sad that the Rachel narrator doesn't have any at all. If they keep doing the books and keep the same narrator, it makes me wonder how she would do this book. Hmm. So I'm wondering if we can get Emily to do a little bit of nice Rachel and mean Rachel for us as like a sample of how 32 would go if they get to it. Let's do it. Very cool. Okay. So more questions in this category. We had a question from Joy Sweeper on Twitter. How did y'all meet and become friends? No, this does not have to be true or accurate. The Yerks could find you. <laughs> so I don't know. What's the, uh, what's the really complicated and elaborate story? Because no, we, we were all, we, we were involved in a three-way head-to-head motorcycle accident. Uh, <laughs> and while we were recovering together um, yes. in the same hospital room, the only book on hand was a tattered and torn copy of The Invasion. 
Yeah, which of course Gray has never read. Exactly. So they made me read it while we were in the hospital. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually where we recorded our first several episodes. episodes. (laughs) We actually never met before that moment. That's weird. I actually don't remember that, maybe because of the head trauma. Um, but I remember, remember when we were all recruited to be a three-person astronaut crew to the space station, and we needed to pass a bunch of hours, and so, you know, we brought the uh, Animorphs e-books with us. Oh, yeah, and we started recording yeah. our Heractalest to be released <laughs> one week at a time yes, after our deaths. Yes. And, of course... <laughs> <laughs> wow, way to break that news bluntly to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> That's actually what happens in the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, God, yeah. it nice. seems like we're responding to you in real time. <laughs> we're just really good. <laughs> we're really good at anticipating things. Yeah. The queen of predictions right here. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Gray was the reason we're able to seem like we're responding to you in real time. So, Gray, did you... Was there any other way that this well, might have happened? And then the other... What really happened... Uh-huh. Um, those are lovely stories, and I appreciate it. <laughs> but what really happened was we were all part of the Ghostwriter gang in the famous television oh. show... Ghostwriter. I can't believe I forgot (gasps) about that. Yeah. Can we do a Ghostwriter podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I am so in for Ghostwriter podcast. I have not seen those that show in forever. Ghostcaster. Ghost Ghost talker. Potter. No. Podwriter. No. No. (laughs) We'll come up with something. (laughs) And one of the mysteries that we had to solve in Ghostwriters, Mm -hmm. as you guys will remember from our famous television show, Mm -hmm. was finding one of the Ghostwriters. For the oh. Animorphs series. What a great plan words our lives had. They really, it really did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since that time, we have, of course, found more mysteries to solve. Mm-hmm. But that one was the start of our love for the Animorphs books. Yeah, wow. I'm so glad that these are the ways it happened. And it wasn't just that Ted and I were singing in a choir together with the person who would become Gray's husband, and then Gray started stage managing our living room musicals, which would actually have been pretty cool now that I think about it. If only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I we think, started... Jenny, you were going to start a blog about the Animorphs. Yeah, I, I told Ted that, and he was like, what if, instead? A podcast. Yeah. And within an hour, Jenny had come back to me and said, Gray's in. <laughs> we were at a party at the time, so it was easy to uh, get Gray on board with us. And then we forced a group of friends to start a young adult book club years ago in order to someday read the Animorphs. Yeah, we didn't know that's why we did it. But but that that was was totally why. We also invented a reason to exchange fanfiction with each other in order to get Jenny to write a lot of Animorphs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I think I did start that so that I would do that for you guys. (laughs) And now there are other Animorphs fanfiction created by Jenny that have been entered into canon. Mm -hmm. A lot of answers to this question. What a good question. It's a very good question. Right. We had a question from Liz on Twitter. If you were forced by plot reasons to have a fake dating situation with one of your fellow Animorphology hosts, (coughs) which would you pick (coughs) and why? (laughs) Gray is dead. <laughs> this is unfortunate. <laughs> because if Gray's dead, then I think we have to fake date Jenny. I, you know, Ted, I'm just not sure we can do that. <laughs> yeah, on a technicality, Jenny and I have an obvious answer here. So, Gray, oh. I think the question is just to you. I mean, I guess I'm going to go hang out with Tobias. <laughs> No, I'm going to go hang out with You're Tobias? I thought you were an android. Why would I be an android? Where is this coming from, Ted? I'm going to go hang out with Marco in the perpetual uh, 
third slash okay. fifth wheel. You can't fake date one of the animorphs. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying because I, oh. I, I have no one to fake date. You, no, you, you, you have to you pick one of us fake to fake date, date either of us. We can't fake date each other because it wouldn't be fake. Well, this is a true OT3 then. <laughs> Aww. You want to fake date both of us? Yeah. Oh, I, I've been for that. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Fake OT3 with Gray. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Council is unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is the scenario in which you need to be in a fake OT3? I think we can also me. choose a fake OT3. Because it is a fake type oh, of thing. Yeah. Okay. Us, yeah. Right? Yeah. So what's your fake OT3? Okay. The why? same three. Yeah. No, but like, why do we need to be in a fake OT3 with Gray? Like, what are the plot reasons? Um, what could motivate this? We are the core of a heist group, mm-hmm. bringing our own mm-hmm. unique skills, um, but only our powers Either combined. a law is passed where podcasters who are in committed <laughs> relationships get um, advertising dollars, <laughs> or there's a contest we can enter anamorphology oh. into, but only... Only as one yes. legally bound entity. <laughs> Perfect. What if Gray has an elderly relative who mm-hmm. wants to leave her a lot of money, but only if she's in a committed polyamorous relationship? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I also like that. Um, yeah. What if it's actually that John Rogers is writing this podcast and therefore OT3 has to be canon? Okay, that was for the two people in our comments who sometimes get my leverage references. Leverage? Okay, okay, great, 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 okay. All right, if we're trying to get John Rogers as a podcast guest. That would be awesome. Okay. He he once tweeted, responded to one of my tweets about my favorite OT3, mm-hmm. and he said it was something like, man, make one OT3 canon. Well, I guess two, and kind of three. Damn, I am the OT3 guy. <laughs> Like, one, you respond to me on Twitter, I love you, and two, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, so if John Rogers is writing our podcast, yeah. we'll have to fake date. Oh, there's nothing fake about these OTs. <laughs> no, but we'll have to fake date so that he, right. yeah. So I'm pretty sure the reason Liz asked this question. I can't believe you just revealed that our podcast is completely scripted. <laughs> <laughs> I just want people to be impressed by how naturalistic our dialogue is, because it's really an achievement. We're very good actors. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Nogura, I think you may have seen this comment, but I know you love it, so I know you want to hear it again. Oh, this is going to be about the elements. Scholastica left a comment on 26, says, if Cryak rhymes with Kayak, yeah. then if Gray becomes Cryak, would her name be Gryak? <laughs> and would it still rhyme with Kayak? <laughs> no, it's obviously Grayak. What happened? Are you sure it wouldn't rhyme with Kayak? I don't know. I'm very torn. <laughs> yeah. I really don't know. Uh, we might have to discuss it and then have the council well, vote. Maybe it's gray yake. Rhymes with J-yake? <laughs> no, just the A sounds is the same. Oh, I see. Well, it's not the same in cryak. <laughs> you know what? You guys... I was holding it together so much better than you this whole time. <laughs> you just have to cut it. You guys... Cut the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> you guys talked me into Cryak. Yeah, we did. It was a big adjustment gonna, for me. All right. We're going to have to go with Cryak. It's going to have to be Cryak. We're going to have to change your name. Oh, okay. That seems fair. Should we Gry. call you Gry? 
if you must, but also <laughs> I don't remember twenty six. I, <laughs> I why am I becoming crying? Oh, I think we I have think been joking about it. No, I just think because you don't like the elements. Oh, okay. yeah, before okay. twenty six. Then yes, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm. Cry is terrible. Crying. <laughs> <laughs> How could you say that about cry? We love cry. We're gonna be in an OT three with her. Yeah, <laughs> it's all so bad. Oh man. Okay. This these are just. Two, two comments. Uh, one from Joe Kenobi on 38. I'm terribly afraid Gray is going to read the beginning and think, oh, this is definitely a plant by Jenny and Ted. I'm very convinced that's Just what's going to happen. Just want you to know. Yeah, yeah. And then from AA on Alternomorphs. Please tell me that this means Alternomorphs 2 will be brought to you by the Drode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. I'm not sure I could take the whole episode of the Drode. That's, that's a, a lot of drode. That's really, really good. A lot of drode. I don't know. Gray, what do you think? I don't know enough about Alternate Wars 2. Do well, it's a whole you book, and do we want it to be read in the drode's voice? Only every other chapter. I want to hear <laughs> Gray and Jenny do the drode. Okay, listen, right. I have a plan for Alternate Wars 2. It's going to be so good. Jenny and Gray have no idea. That's accurate. That I have no right idea. Now. Yeah. How does the drode's voice go? We'll see if we can imitate it. Yep. You have to remind us. Remind you of what? Okay. Remind you of what? <laughs> okay, that was pretty good. Okay, all right. Let's, let's hear it. Greg. Let's see how I can do. Remind you of what? That was like Gollum does the drone. That was great. <laughs> like Gollum cross with Kermit. <laughs> True. That yeah. describes the drone perfectly. <laughs> Gollum cross with Kermit. Oh, Isn't no. he green? Gollum, Gollum and Kermit are both way more lovable than the drone. Is, is the drone green is... or purple? I know he's Barney Colors, but I don't remember I what his primary color is. I think it was the alien in 2020 that was Barney Colored. Oh, I think we're, we've conflated them. No, the drone is definitely... The drone is like a prune. Like a wrinkled yes, prune. Yes, yes. Okay, Gollum is like questionably lovable, but like way more lovable than the drone. Who wouldn't love the drones, Jenny? <laughs> oh, man. All right, that's it for uh, Animorphology in the Council. So, Shape of the Series is the last question category here. AJ on Facebook asks, What's your overall impression of the ghost-written books so far? And do you have any update on what the current themes of the series seem to be? Like, hope was really strong in the beginning, but it's shifted since then for sure. So, yeah, what's what's your impression of the ghost-written books so far, Greg? I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, taken as a whole. Yes, there are some good ones. Yeah, there are the occasional good ones, the occasional truly terrible ones. Mm -hmm. And most of them are just like not as good as the ones written by Apple Grant themselves. And I think part of it is that, as we've discussed, the distinction between the vision and the execution is really just pretty alarming sometimes. And and it's hard to tell. It makes it hard to tell whether it's just that the outline for the books isn't that Mm -hmm. great or actually just the ghostwriters are pretty terrible. And sometimes it's both. I think it's also tough because, like, it came at a point in the series when, like, it seems like they were running low on some of their ideas. Yeah. Like, they were really struggling to find good ideas. I don't know. Maybe that's just because the execution wasn't great. Maybe those ideas would have been better handled by Apple Grant. Hard to say. It's interesting because, like, some of the through lines are really strong. Like, of the Animorphs, like, Pax and Marco definitely have had solid ghost-written arc books. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. In sort of... 35. Yeah. Well, Cassie's, Visser, Visser Cassie's was kind of foundered a little. That's true. Yeah. Cassie hasn't done much. Rachel hasn't done much. That I mean, like. yeah. Mm-hmm. Rachel's gone off the rails. Yeah. The way Rachel is written has gone off. Yes. Rachel's, yes. Rachel's Jake fun. has had, Jake has continued kind of in his, in yeah. his arc to a certain 
He hasn't done anything like super new and exciting. 36 was pretty much a write-off. Yeah, but 31 was good. Yeah, 31 was good. I guess 29 was good for Cassie. Tobias doesn't have a lot of books. I mean, 33 is so good. 33 is really good. Yeah. But it's not as like new for Tobias as 23 was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so do we have thoughts on the themes of the series? I mean, Hope does... I feel like they haven't been harping on any specific thing. Like, they Mm -hmm. haven't been banging us over the head with it the way they did Hope. Yeah. But definitely the shape of, like, what the kids are doing has changed. Like, it really feels like a grind for them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have given up on this idea of the Andalite fleet showing up. That's happened fairly recently, so I don't know if we've seen a lot of... I think there's an interesting idea here where the fact that the books are in this ghostwriter purgatory... Mm-hmm. Works as a metaphor Ooh. for the war that they're stuck in. Yep, Ooh. that's great. Because I love that. because the books feel like more of a grind to us. At the same time, as the characters are like, so narratively, shouldn't we have like won or all died by now? We just have to keep <laughs> fighting these battles, and just like they get weirder and more random, and like it just <laughs> keeps going on forever, right? Like. That is kind of what is so dehumanizing about yeah. the struggle that they find themselves in. Is that mm-hmm. Every month you come back and the Animorphs are still fighting and yep. they're still child soldiers and it's still really, really bad more than yeah. it ever is good. And it works with kind of like, the series will never end. There will always be more Animorphs books. And then at some point, Apple Grant decides actually it will end. And what will that be like? No, that's a good point. Yeah, I like that. So... That's pretty much, that's all we really need to talk about for Shape of the Series. Let's move on. I think we should briefly talk about drinking game. Okay. We've referenced this a lot. I think we should maybe, you know, take a minute and, uh, you know, build it out and let uh, our listeners add elements. Does that mean we have to create rules that will not guarantee somebody die about alcohol? <laughs> no, we do not. Episode? We're not specifying what they're drinking. Hydration is important, Ted. Okay. <laughs> so Definitely. far, what's on it? Uh, interesting. Yep. Problematic. Yep. Grapple. <laughs> yes. I think I have questions and oh, no. a couple things. <laughs> no, I thought it was when I swear. Ooh, also gray swearing. That's a great one. Yep. Ted doing a voice. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Pocket universe. Yes. Um, we need one for Jenny. When Jenny denies being an android. <laughs> why would I? Why would, What? Why would that even come up? <laughs> Wheaties. Uh, Jake's height. <laughs> I think our like complete inability to buy something logistical in the series drink for any actual extreme difference of opinion like about 39 drink when we should mark up with somebody <laughs> hope everyone's drinking water drink whenever the council rules <laughs> yes <laughs> drink whenever Grey predicts something eerily accurately that's going to be called Grey is the Queen of Predictions. Yes. Uh, drink whenever Ted and Jenny troll Grey. Now yeah. we're just getting into my bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a great transition. Uh, so we've mentioned that you have a bingo card. I do have a bingo do card. Tell us what you have checked off so far and what things you would need to get bingo. Ooh, this is a really, really good question. Okay. I We should also, I, like... We all post it in the notes. Yeah. yeah. So my bingo card. Okay. Um. So right now, the the ones I've checked off in in an order Mm -hmm. are Visor Three makes bad decisions, which was my free space. (laughs) Um, Opening caper and Ted and Jenny troll Gray. Yep. I have been informed that I cannot use the Helmicron ship 
that they're using in 3089 to as to count my Return of the Helmicrons. Those aren't Helmicrons, just a ship. So I need Return of the Helmicrons and they defeat Kryak in order to get that wave bingo. But I also... This is an interesting question that I'm just thinking of. Do you mean ultimately defeat Kryak or just like the way they defeated him in Book 26? Well, I really want to get Bingo, so the way they they defeated him in Book 26. (laughs) The other direction, I also have checked off the Eskville device shows Mm, up. mm -hmm. So if, which one of these seems more likely? Uh, So Return of the Helmicrons, I need that either way, so please can I have that? Rachel and Tobias kiss, they rescue Visser 1, and there's a giraffe morph, then I'll get it up and down that one Oh, nice, okay. But yeah, we'll, we'll post this. And yeah, you guys can decide how likely it is that Gray will get bingo. How nice that I already have Jenny and Ted troll Gray. We're just so nice that way. We're very supportive. Very kind of you. Okay, so I think the last thing we need to do before we wrap it up mm-hmm. is we need to talk about our book rankings. We've done revised ones for everything we've read so far, mm-hmm. at least in theory. Hopefully didn't forget any. Bottom line up front. A lot of new additions in the bottom part. Yup. I also have that. Yes. So many. Really Should we lot. talk about the the positives first before we get into it? Yeah. Did people have any new entries into the top ten? Yes. Yes. I only had one new entry into the top ten. Me as well. I yep. had two, but that's because I'm counting Jenny's weakness. <laughs> oh, I, just, I forgot to rank my divorce three. So what is what are the new entries to your top ten, Greg? Um, it, it was just Jenny's one. Aw, where'd you put it? Number one. Great. <laughs> that is completely unjustified, but thank you. No, it's not. I love it. Um, I have, I put in number 33, and I put it in the third spot, because I love it. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, I think there's a large part of me that, like, you know, I was 14 when I read this book, mm-hmm. and Rachel and Tobias have a really dramatic kiss at the end, and I loved oh, yeah. it. But also, I was just really into, like... The suffering and the, like, serious feelings that Tobias has. So, like, while I recognize it's probably not the best Tobias book, it's, like, the one that has, like, stayed in my heart the most. So my top three are 19, 22, 33. Nice. Hmm. 33 didn't make my top ten, but Visser did. I have it in as number nine. Ooh, nice. I have in, like, the top 15 or so. Should we talk about the bottom? Yes, let's talk about the bottom. So how many new books are in your bottom ten? So many. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have only four. So part of my problem is that the way I've been ranking this is if I had to remove this from canon, how upset would I be? And at this oh. point, I'm just not as attached to them. So yeah, like yeah, yeah, something like, you know, 16, I'm not going to rank anything above that because, well, 16 is like middle-ish for me. But like, I can't imagine removing an earlier book. In yeah. exchange for one of... Well, right, like, I would never move book four from mm-hmm. the series, but it's right. it's still my yeah. fourth least favorite. <laughs> it's still in my bottom ten. So, like, 32 is, like, in the middle for me, because I still have fond memories of it, mostly it for the ending. It is not in the middle um, for me, I'm sorry. 31, 30, and 38 are also in there, and then everything else that's... Oh, and Visser was... A, was 15th but everything else was like i think i need to reconsider some of this because like i was sort of inserting things in and i'm realizing that like i had 17 near the bottom and some like i was saying like well you know 35 and 36 don't bother me as much as 17 Mm -hmm. but that means i've now ranked 35 and 36 above megamorphs one which seems completely ridiculous that's so i think i think i'm gonna need to revisit this order but Mm -hmm. for me 
37 are the weakest of the new additions, and they're all down in that bottom tier. Yeah, so... Nine is also there for me. Yes, so my bottom is... (laughs) You guys will be so proud of me that I ranked 39 below the Helmicrons book. (laughs) And above... Number ten. The Helmicron is like above the middle for me. My my bottom my bottom ten is four, Megamorphs three, twenty-eight, forty, thirty-five, thirty-four, twenty-five, thirty-six, thirty-nine, and thirty-seven. <gasps> no That's so <laughs> I'm cruel. so sorry, Ted. I'm so sorry. You it's like just... you like eleven more than thirty nine? Yeah, I don't really have the problem with eleven that you seem to have with it. Ugh. It's I mean it's 12th from the bottom for me. You're like 36, more than 39? Yes. Uh. <laughs> 36 was dumb, but Wait. 39 was so implausible. I how just could bad, not get on How board. bad is 39 for you, Gray? Is it also second to bottom? It is not second to bottom, but it is fifth to bottom. She's much more generous than 39. What, what's worse than 39? Yeah, so what's your bottom 10? Uh, okay, um, in worst to least worst. <laughs> I've got um, 37, 29, I just really didn't like it, 36, 17, 39, 32, 35, 11, 16, 31, 2. Where did 32 end up for you, Jenny? It's like... She likes that one. 15 from the bottom. I, I liked it more when I was younger, and so I'm more attached to it. This this list is very influenced by nostalgia for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This list is very influenced I'm by reasons. I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need to do some reordering before we make these official. Yeah. I suspect that I will be more charitable towards number eleven and Megamorphs one than I have been in the past. <laughs> yeah, thirty four, thirty five, thirty six, and thirty seven are all newly in my bottom ten. Mm-hmm. But the other ones are, are older. Forty is in my bottom ten. Forty is almost there, but yeah, I put it and thirty nine for me. Megamorphs three, I put it just above the evasion. I love it. Wow! All right. <laughs> yeah, I did this very much based on I made four boxes, and the four boxes were great, good. Fine and bad. <laughs> and then I put yeah, Megamorph three is not in my bad box. That is interesting. Yeah, I think the bad box starts with twenty five. Oh, maybe thirty four. Thirty four, twenty five, thirty six, thirty nine, and thirty seven. And thirty seven is really in a different 25, box. Twenty five isn't even bad. It's just math. Yeah, maybe it should be about thirty four. It's controversial, but there's more stuff in thirty four I find interesting, and twenty five was just kind of yeah. Playing. That's definitely true. Okay, so do we have any other business? Before wrapping this up, not mostly wanted to do personal. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't feel. I don't feel imaginatively prepared for that. Leave the ads as an exercise for the listener. Perfect. <laughs> please, no, listeners, please record <gasps> an, an ad for anamorphology, and we will include oh it my in gosh. a future episode. Please send that to us. That would be amazing. For sure, please. Do Even that. if it's for like something real, it will probably still be great. We'll do it. So yeah, thanks everyone. That's that's all we have for the mailbag right now. We look forward to uh, returning to your regularly scheduled uh, series. <laughs>
defend my answers. It is self-evident. 